Today on Physically Spiritual, I'm going to explore growth and personal development, relationships and the liturgy through the thought of Dietrich von Hildebrand and Conrad Bars. Welcome to Physically Spiritual. I'm amazed by how much growing physically healthier has changed my spiritual life. I'm captivated by discovering the truth about my body and how it reveals God. Physically Spiritual is my attempt to harmonize and share what I've discovered. I'm your host, Andrew Reinhardt. On previous seasons of Physically Spiritual, I've had a couple episodes about the Eucharist. One in season two when we were going through the sacraments, and then one in season four at the end of the series on food. And in both of these episodes, I was trying to wrestle with a question that I posed, the basic idea of when we receive the Eucharist so regularly as Catholics, why doesn't it change us more? Right? Why, if the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ— and all the power that created the universe is in that host, why doesn't it seem to move our hearts more? And as I've been reflecting on my own answers to those questions and and kind of exploring what Catholic thought has to offer, I have to admit that I think my responses were were partial and and not completely correct because there's a, a way at which I was framing the question that just makes the Eucharist a means to an end, right? And not an end in of itself. And this is part of the issue, that the Holy Mass, the Most Blessed Sacrament, isn't a therapeutic tool, it's an act of worship. And we're only uh, secondarily or accidentally transformed in the process of seeking the Lord with our whole heart, mind, and soul, and giving our whole selves to him as he gives his whole self to us in the Eucharist. So in order to explore these themes a little bit more deeply, I'm going to be digging a bit into uh, the church's philosophical tradition in the 20th century with Dietrich von Hildebrandt and also revisiting some concepts from uh, Dr. Conrad Bars, whom I uh, explored in season three of the podcast as we were talking about emotional health. So first I want to just talk a little bit about self-help, selfishness, and holiness. Uh, I, I think to really dig deep into this question, we have to start with a bit of philosophy. Uh, All of modern thought of philosophy from a secular perspective began, uh, from most people's perspective, with the posit of uh, uh, René Descartes, which he starts his philosophical system with the statement, I think, therefore I am, right? This simple affirmation of self-existence being the one thing he couldn't deny or couldn't doubt. And by using this hermeneutic of doubt, Uh, Looking at everything else in the foundation of classical thought, he basically said that that in every other case, he couldn't have uh, absolute certainty, what some kind of called apodictic certainty, about any other claim other than simply the truth of his own existence, his own being, based on uh, his awareness of his own awareness. But starting the philosophical system out this way puts us in in a bind, in a position of, of isolation, and, and a lot of modern philosophy going forth from that point is trying to deal with and wrestle with this issue that we're sort of stuck in ourselves, stuck in our own mind, and we can't really account for the world that's out there, nor other people whom are also thinking beings. And then with that, there's a certain invulnerability, right? I'm, I'm sort of a self-contained power that exerts my power on the world around me to to reach the ends which I want. But I'm not really a part of the world or a part of nature. 
and I'm not truly like vulnerable to the world around me. There's this, this isolation, this wall, this sort of moat between me as a person and the outside world. And there's a movement uh, in, in philosophy at the beginning of the 20th century called phenomenology, which started to, uh, I think, put some cracks in this kind of solipsistic approach to philosophy. See, one of the high points of, of modern philosophy was the thought of Immanuel Kant. And the way that he sort of wrestled with this issue of the, the self being isolated from the world around it was an idea that he had that while we do have an experience of things outside of ourselves, we don't have an experience of, of the truth of those things. We just experience phenomena. We don't experience in contrast what he called the noumena. So, so the, the thing itself, the substance, just think of a thing in nature like a tree, right? That tree has a certain nature. It's, it's treeness, it's, it's essence, it's self-organizingness. And that's its, its noumena. But on the other hand, the, what we're actually experiencing when I see the tree, when I touch the tree, I'm experiencing the phenomena of the tree. So it's, it's like kind of a projection or a representation of the thing that's then also affected by my subjective experiencing of it. So, so in this, he's, he's sort of explaining the fact that while we do experience things outside of us, we don't experience the things in themselves. There's this layer between us and the other thing. There's this insulation between me and the rest of reality. And the basic claim of phenomenology in the school of phenomenological thought, which really started with uh, Edmund Husserl, but was built on the um, uh, a development of the, the system of Franz Brentano, was this basic claim that all consciousness is intentional. It's intentional, meaning it's directed toward the thing in of itself. And he, he sort of works around this question not by worrying about the thing out there, but by, by spending time focusing on the experience of the thing in consciousness. So he accepts the world as given and things in, in the world as being given to us, meaning that reality has a certain vulnerability to it, that I can't help but experience the things that are around me and the things that are around me can't help but give themselves to me. There's a... There's a uh, a, a, a mutual, uh, a mutual giving, a mutual exposure of different things in reality to one another, and and there's really nothing we can do in our will to prevent this. I'm given to you, and you're given to me. And, and from this school, there was a lot of Catholic thinkers who who grabbed onto these ideas, and while most of them had some kind of critique or adjustment to the thought of Edmund Husserl, um, they, they all picked up these basic ideas to then reapproach the things in themselves to start asking the question about being. One of the things we have to face, though, is that in our, in our modern context, in our modern world, we're still operating out of this, uh, largely out of this sort of Kantian view of the world. This is the the philosophy that was behind uh, a lot of classic liberal thought that has gone into our economic system. This is also the philosophy that goes be, uh, that behind our relationship with nature. Right, a, a lot of what we as human people do when we approach nature is we 
we want to form nature by imposing our power upon it. So the idea is that that nature is is there and we're not a part of nature, right? I'm I'm a human person that's somehow separate from nature. And then I can impose my power on the sort of raw material of the world to make of it what I want. And by doing this, I can then extend my power even further. And and we typically uh, try to do this for the greater good, right? For the creation of wealth, for the production of commodities, in order that people can be lifted out of poverty or for the, the, the procession forward of medical science and being able to cure diseases. But at base, the, the problem isn't the fact that we're doing all these good things. The problem is this basic relationship of, uh, you might call it animosity or, or conflict or the imposition of power between persons and nature. The classical viewpoint and the Catholic viewpoint is that we as persons, we are part of nature that I myself am an environment, and that I'm vulnerable to the world around me, that I, I experience the things in and of themselves, and those things change me whether I want them to or not. I can't by my will put up a force field. <laughs> so everyone I experience, everything I experience, uh, imprints on me and, and changes me and affects me, and I can't help but experience the world around me. And then as I go through the world, I can't help but give myself to the world as other people and the things around me receive me as I interact with it. So there's this uh, basic and fundamental relationship of connectedness between the human person and the rest of reality and between the, th- the things in themselves and the experience of the thing in and of itself. Now, why do I start with this, uh, this philosophical tour that maybe put some of you to sleep? When we're talking about the themes of, of physically spiritual, these ideas of, of health and wellness mixed with Catholic spirituality and, and holiness, we often bring this, this Kantian relationship to nature into our relationship with our own bodies and with our life of holiness. We can think of my body as sort of the raw material of me and, and me as my soul, separate from my body, imposes power on my body to make of it what I want. My body becomes a means to an end, right? I wanna make my body attractive. So I am powerfully impose diets and exercise and different, different uh, behaviors onto my body in order to manipulate it and make it what I want it to be for a certain end of, of status or attractiveness or uh, the ability to perform in a sport or maybe just to fulfill my own uh, insecurity. But in the Catholic viewpoint, I am a person who is body and soul, so my body is me. And if I'm just uh, powerfully and forcefully manipulating the physical aspect of myself, I'm ultimately wounding myself. I'm hurting myself in order to actualize myself or something like that. (laughs) There's this, this kind of disintegration of the human person that happens as a result of this relationship of distance and power when we approach self-help this way. And then additionally, we can bring this mindset into our practice of the faith. When we go to mass, right? Am I just going to mass to fulfill a law and then in order to get something out of it? Going there just as a duty, but in the meantime, I can, I can sort of mine out some value from the liturgy the same way a capitalist might 
pull raw materials out of the ground in order to create money that can be used. Right? Am I just going to mass to be holy? Am I just going to mass to get over a problem? To allay my sense of guilt? Right? Am I, am I ultimately seeing the mass as another way for me to extend my power into my objectification of the reality of the world around me? To dig deep into these questions, I think the philosophy of Dietrich von Hildebrand uh, can come, come in and save the day. In his uh, beautiful little book, Liturgy and Personality, Dietrich von Hildebrand uh, really elucidates an idea, a concept of what he calls value, the value of things. And this is uh, one philosophical approach to, to this kind of Kantian modern question of the separation, the distance between the thing in of itself and the perceiver of the thing. When he talks about value, uh, it's this beautiful reflection on, on basically everything is a value because it's created by God. And everything that God creates reflects something of God's goodness, truth, beauty, unity. And so as those things are in the world, they sort of seep out or emanate this value these, these traces of, of God that are left there from their essence, from God holding it in being and making it what it is. This is what he, he says on value on page 11 of Liturgy and Personality. He says, that which is created, whether it belongs to the domain of pure matter or to the realm of organic life or to the sphere of spiritual things. And he lists here all the different things like objects in the world, like minerals versus organic life, like like animals and plants versus spiritual things like humans or, or th beautiful things that humans create in collaboration with God, like art and philosophy. He said, these exist in order to imitate and glorify God by fulfilling the divine idea in its regard and simultaneously bringing to fruition the fullness of values to which it is ordained. He's pulling in here a, a classic idea that comes out of the perennial philosophy of the church, that when, when God creates, he's creating out of these divine ideas, that God's perfection in the realm of creation breaks into particulars like light hitting a prism. So ultimately, the, the grounding of, of all essences, of all substances, is the way that, that, that God gives them being out of his own mind, then everything fulfills itself or, or is what it is, sort of actualizes itself by, by simply being what it is, by to the extent that it possibly can, reflecting and living the perfection of, of the, the aspect of God that it's meant to be. He goes on, for all values, goodness, beauty, the mystery of life, the noble light of truth, and even the dignity of every being itself, all these are rays which radiate from God's being, who is all holiness. All right, so as you're, you're listening to this beautiful reflection on, on things being a value in and of themselves, and, and hopefully you're, you're contrasting it to this sort of modern notion of, of this power relationship and manipulation of nature and this, this Kantian separation between the things in, the, in themselves and us. Hopefully you can see the contrast between these ideas. So we as humans are called to enter into the world around us 
receiving and responding to the values that are being given to us. So everything I experience out in the natural world, every other person I experience, every spiritual thing that I experience, I'm experiencing a certain value, which is a reflection of of God. And so my interaction with the world, my responses to the world, my choices that I make in light of the world are meant to be responses to my experience of those values. And he says that, uh, that really the, the, the development of what he calls true personality, and he's using personality in, in a broader sense than kind of the way that we talk about personality tests and things like this, but personalities and the person, me as a person, becoming fully what God has designed me to be, my own actualization of, of, of my substance. That this personality grows and develops through the authentic response to value. This is what uh, von Hildebrand says about personality. He says, the true normal is the classical man who is fully perceptive of value and responsive to them. The uncramped objective man, liberated from the prison of himself, in whom the capacity for self-donation and love is unbroken. Once again, as you hear this, I hope it, it creates a contrast in your mind between von Hildebrand's thought and these kind of modern ideas. Right? He's liberated from the prison of himself. There's this, this ultimate being given to the world and being present to the world. And then this capacity of self-donation, right? That would be in contrast to, to the projection of power and manipulation that modern philosophy presents to be our relationship to the world around us. Von Hildebrand is saying the, the, the true personality, the mature man, the holy man, is one who is in a relationship of self-donation to the world around him. There's, there's three elements in his mind to true personality. He says, first is a full spiritual endowment. He says, in the first place, there's a fullness of the essential spiritual faculties, the capacity of loving and knowing, the power of will, the natural potential of the person which flows from him. We might say his essential endowment as distinct from special talents. It's, this is a bit of an oversimplification, but we might say this is simply being what's often called the best version of yourself, right? Be what you are and be it to its full. It's being a human fully alive, but also being authentic to who you are. The second element of true personality is a deep link to values. He says, secondly, there is an organic link with values and truth. His perception of them, his response to them, his living in truth, in tune with the objective logos, and his lack of subjective deviation from the meaning of being. This word logos is a Greek word that's often translated from Greek as the word word. Right? This is from the word in the prologue of the Gospel of John. John chapter 1 presents Jesus as the logos. But this word logos could also be translated as hierarchy or order or design. And, and it has this kind of divine idea connotation. The ancient philosophers, even before Christianity, talked about the Logos being this divine reality that's sort of the form and structure of all reality that emanated out from God. So this idea that 
that there's uh, an objective logos or a seed of the logos in everything in reality. And, and that true personality is, is, is a subjective harmony with the logos that, that's discovered in all other things. All right, the third um, element of true personality is the possession of a unity of style. This is what he says. External being is not inorganically and outwardly stamped on the inner being, but it is a genuine projection of the latter. There's a rare harmony between the inner and the outer being. So our true style is, is an integrity, is a harmony between our internal self and our out, external self. That what's happening on the outside of us, our, our appearance, our, our facial expression, our words, our reactions, are all authentic to our internal being. Right? If we live in this world where things in themselves are separate from us, and we need to impose our will on reality in order to get what we need. There's this primordial striving and imposition of power in order to manipulate the world to, in order for us to survive. If that's reality, right, then I need to set up a similar separation between the inside of me and the outside of me in the way I present myself to the world. Because I need to be as, as safe as I can be, as protected as I can be. Then as presenting myself as a projection, as I want you to see me, not as I am, then I'm able to greater manipulate the world around me to impose power on it. But the true personality is the exact opposite of this. The true personality is, is, is one that comes out of a position of, of, uh, of wholeness because we realize that reality gives us what we truly need. We don't need to take it from reality. Reality offers it to us. And by responding to the world around us in a way that's authentic and true to being, what we do is we become a steward of reality. We, we make it better. We, we, uh, we till and plant in the way that God asked Adam and Eve to do in the Garden of Eden. You know, it's the kind of relationship that, that a vine dresser has with the vine or that, that a farmer has with their orchard. That by responding to the value of the apple tree and recognizing, you know, the goodness of the fruit, the farmer prunes the tree in a certain way in order that the tree becomes more perfectly what it is. So that our, our interaction with the world around us becomes a, a symbiotic relationship that, that everything the human person interacts with becomes more perfectly what it is, more brightly shining the logos. God's design, the goodness, truth, unity, the being that God has given it. And in this way, uh, we ourselves have to also allow reality to do this to us. That we need to allow reality to respond to us as a value in and of itself. And that our formation, the growth of our personality, our, our development, our personal holiness happens as a result of us experiencing reality responding to us as a value, and then us responding back to reality as a value in and of itself too. This is what von Hildebrand says about this process. It's the man who has been melted by the son of values, above all the man who has been wounded by the love of Christ, is also lovingly open to every man 
and has entered into the objective unity of all. So we can pull our, our faith into this, our spirituality into this, and understand that we don't just experience God as God has revealed himself in nature, the three ways that God's present to nature, that he's created it and holds it in being, that he knows it all, and that he guides it all by his providence, right? So there's a way that we're in contact with God by, by being in contact with what God has created, ourselves and others. But God has given us more than this, right? God has given us a supernatural life with him, the life of prayer, the life of revelation, the life of theology, the life of, of mysticism, the life of the sacraments. And in all these places, we, we encounter the supreme value, the supreme value that's reflected in every other thing we experience in the world. And, and this experience of value, I love this image, melts, melts us like the sun. <laughs> and it's this melting, which is the true development of our personality. That's what, what true growth is, what true holiness is. So this fundamental attitude toward reality, this posture toward reality, that's a, that's a vulnerability to value, von Hildebrand describes as reverence. He says reverence is the fundamental attitude toward being in which, in which one gives all being the opportunity to unfold itself in its specific nature, in which one neither behaves as its master nor acts towards it in a spirit of familiar conviviality. So we allow each thing to be what it is and allow it to unfold and then we receive it as it is. And then we don't master it. But then we also don't handle it too lightly, right? There can be uh, a sort of uh, irreverent um, uh, handling of things uncarefully without the love that's due. And in this space, we have this, this true reverence toward reality. He says the egocentric man, on the other hand, as opposed to the true personality, the egocentric man, somehow, he says, the egocentric man transforms his giving himself up to value into a means of his own perfection. He is not interested in this perfection because of the glorification of God, but because of his own perfection. So the egocentric man can even make his entry into the world of values, this reverence, a means to an end. Because he isn't trying to glorify God and, and give the world around him glory in its due. He's using God and the world around him and his experience of those values as a means to an end, as a means to his own self-development, his own perfection, his own holiness. So as you're, you're reflecting on these ideas from Dietrich von Hildebrandt, I hope it's uh, just causing your mind to light up and think about uh, the way that self-help works, the way that people talk about self-development and growth and rise and grind and all these phrases that we use about, um, about personal transformation and becoming who we're called to be. And, and that this hopefully starts to enlighten a shift in posture toward the world around you toward an authentic growth, a development of true personality that comes out of this place of vulnerability to reality and reverence towards reality and reverence toward the self. I want to shift now to a thinker that I've talked some about before in season three, to Conrad Bars. So when I talked about Conrad Bars before, we talked about this idea of affirmation 
and the affirmed person. And I think there's a beautiful connection between the thought of Dietrich von Hildebrand and the thought of Conrad Bars. So Conrad Bars presents this idea of affirmation. It's, it's the basic experience of someone else experiencing you as a good in and of yourself. So this is what he says what affirmation is. He says, affirmation, authentic affirmation, is first of all a state of being, and only secondarily may it lead to doing, to acts, or to words, that may be complete the affirmation of the other. So authentic affirmation isn't like writing positive things in your journal or, or, or stating mantras to yourself like, I'm a strong and beautiful man. <laughs> you know, that's a kind of self-affirmation that's a, a really a futile effort to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Authentic affirmation is the full attention of someone else's full being. It's the capacity of someone who is emotionally mature and affirmed themselves. And it's not a technique. And it cannot be simulated by an act of the will. Uh, this is what Conrad Barr says in affirmation. He says, in order to become open to all existing goodness and thus to find happiness through affirming that goodness, whether in beings or things, you first have to be yourself. In order to be yourself, you must first become yourself. In order to become yourself, you must first receive the gift of yourself. In order to receive the gift, there has to be another who gives who gives without taking, without demanding anything, who gives what is not his or her own, but yours, your own goodness. The other can do this only when the other is already happy with himself or herself and thus open to the goodness of all else. So affirmation is the experience of somebody else experiencing you for your own goodness. And he describes this process in three steps. They're aware, attentive, and present to you. They're aware, attentive, and present to you. And then they're moved by you. They feel attracted to you. And they find delight in your goodness and worth. And then finally, they permit their being moved or being attracted by you to be revealed simply and primarily by psychomotor reactions. These are visible, sensible, physical changes which are part of the being moved. So the person is affirming when they're aware, attentive, and presence. They're moved by, feel attracted to, and respond to your goodness and worth. And then they simply permit that to be seen by a simple, authentic reacting, by the reaction of their face, by their posture, by their words, by their choices. It's, it's an authentic flowing out to your goodness, to your truth. This is what authentic affirmation is. And the affirmed person who can affirm others is the person who's experienced this as the core of them receiving their identity. So let's think about this in, in this kind of idea of self-help, this relationship to nature that we've been talking about. That my, my authentic growth as a person comes from my, my receiving this affirmation from others. So we could think of this in the context of the family, right? This is meant to be kind of the core, the heart, the spirit of parenthood is this affirmation of the child, the awareness, the attention, the being present to the child, 
then they're moved by, feeling attracted to and delighting in the goodness of the child. And, and then there's this authentic response to the child that, that's visible. The child sees the response of the parent. This lines up very beautifully with, uh, with the modern idea of attachment theory and, and the kind of response that the parent provides the child in their, in their delight of their face that develops the central nervous system of the child in, in, in their early years, right? Modern neuroscience is, is affirming these theories that Catholic philosophers and doctors discovered decades ago. But then also think of some of the scourges of our modern society, like bring in the idea of the smartphone into parenting, <laughs> the experience of, of the parent not being aware, attentive, or present, right? And it just prevents this whole cycle of affirmation of the child from happening. When Pope St. John Paul II, uh, in his Theology of the Body, he actually re kind of reflects really closely on these ideas. He says, the affirmation of the person is nothing other than welcoming the gift, which through reciprocity creates the communion of persons. This communion builds itself from within. Uh, this is from... Uh, the general audience he gave on January 16, 1980, as part of the, the series that's often called The Theology of the Body. The affirmation of persons is not, none other than welcoming the gift. Right? The other person is a value in and of themselves, and they're a gift to reality. In a sense, we're all part of God's gift in creation. So it's, it's a perception of that gift, a welcoming of that gift, and then a response to that gift of a making a gift of myself back, creating a communion of persons, which builds itself from within, right? And in this process is, is both the development of true personality that Dietrich von Hildebrand talks about and the process of becoming an affirmed person that Conrad Bars talks about. I would actually claim that what, what Dietrich von Hildebrand is exploring philosophically and objectively in the world of values is, a, is correlated to what Conrad Bars is exploring psychologically and subjectively in the experience of emotion. And then it corresponds theologically and mystically to what John Paul II is reflecting on in the theology of the body. And all of these thinkers are, are basically developing their thoughts in a similar period of time after World War II in, and in the context of this school of phenomenology affecting academia. And, and it's not an accident that that's the context it's in. So let's now bring all of these ideas together. I want to make the claim that there is no such thing as self-help. Self-help's an illusion. It's a lie. All attempts at self-help is, is an attempt at a false self-affirmation. All self-help, if it's true, if it does have an effect, it's a response to the value of things or a response to the value of other persons. So I might be experiencing a, a truth, a goodness, right? So I'm experiencing an authentic value that's part of the divine gift to reality. And then by responding to that divine gift, I'm growing, I'm changing as a result of being, uh, being uh, re receptive to that value. So if, if I'm growing as a result of some experience of, of a book or 
or um, something in the world, that's not self-help, that's God's help. I'm responding to God as the person who put that goodness, unity, or truth in reality. Or I'm responding to other people as a value in and of themselves, right? The goodness of a therapist, the goodness of a spiritual director, of a pastor in confession. You're both experiencing God in that confessional and you're experiencing the goodness of that priest in the confessional. And the the transformation that happens is a a response to the value that's uh, in one dynamic, a supernatural reality of the grace you're receiving. But another dynamic, there's also a, a natural thing that's happening of of the simple experience of the other and the reception of the gift of the other. And this is all happening simultaneously. So all self-help is an illusion. It's all God help. And it's God's help being mediated through the goodness of creation and the goodness of other people or the goodness of the new creation of the supernatural. When, I, when I'm also thinking about my own growth, my personal development, my growth in holiness, I need to be responding to myself as a value. I can't be bringing this relationship of power and manipulation and control into my own personal transformation. My body's not raw materials that's just there for me to actualize my inner being. My body is me. And I am a good, a true, a beautiful that has a value in and of itself. So all growth, all personal development, all striving after holiness needs to be a response to value, an act of self-love, an act of self-acceptance, an act where I'm trying to make myself more holy what I am. It means I need to do an examination of conscience on myself to be sure I'm not using myself as a means to an end. And the ways that I might use myself as a means to an end are simply enumerated in, in the, um, the seven deadly sins. <laughs> Pride, vanity, lust, gluttony. Right? These are all outward manifestations of this inward disorder where I'm using myself as a means to an end. Right? Am I just trying to be holy so I look good, so I'm important, so I'm respected, so someday I can be written about in books? and other people can think well of me? Is it just pride and vanity? Am I just eating this food to feel better? To have a certain look? To have a certain strength to manipulate the world around me or or have a certain attractiveness in order to get the right spouse? Right? Am I just imposing my power on myself and making myself a means to an end? In our faith, the gift of our faith, the sacraments, the beauty of God's revelation, the scripture, prayer. Is this another tool that I use to impose my power on reality? Or am I authentically responding to God as a value in and of itself in myself, receiving God's affirmation of my being and receiving God's affirmation through others who he's put there to love me, my parents, my friends, my pastor, my spiritual fathers and mothers, And by receiving that value, allowing me to be vulnerable to reality and transformed by it, to receive myself from the world around me so that I can then give myself out as a gift to others in response, right? This is true self-development. This is true growth and holiness. This is is the Christian version of, 
of personal development. Now let's circle back to where I started. I started talking about previous episodes where I talked about the Eucharist or about the sacraments or about the liturgy. Right, there's a way at which we can, uh, we can bring this mindset of use, of power, of selfishness, of egocentrism into the liturgy, into the Mass, into the Eucharist. The Eucharist is not there to make us holier. The Eucharist is there primarily because God is responding to us as a value in and of ourselves. Right, so the sacraments are God's response to humanity in light of the incarnation. <laughs> There's a beautiful way of thinking about the Trinity in light of these ideas, right? Because you have a father, and a father is a father because he has a son. So you have a father and a son responding to one another as values in and of themselves, infinite values. And the only infinite response to value possible would be another divine person, right? So, so you go back to the ancient Augustinian analogy of love with the Trinity, that the Holy Spirit is the love between the Father and Son. We might say in, in von Hildebrand's language that the Holy Spirit is the response to value between the Father and the Son. And the sacramental reality is the consequence of the second person of the Trinity becoming human, so the incarnation, now Jesus Christ, eternal son of the father, is now fully human and fully divine. So the response to value between God the father and God the son as incarnate now has an incarnational manifestation, and that's the sacraments. So by entering into the sacraments, we're entering into the response to value between the Father and the Son, this eternal love relationship. And we receive what? We receive the Holy Spirit. We receive divine life. And we're melted away in the Son of these values. Like That's what's happening in the liturgy. In the Eucharist, God is vulnerably exposing his response to value and demonstrating the process of affirmation. So God is aware, attentive, and present to us. And then he's moved by, feels attracted to, and finds delight in your goodness and worth. And then permits his being moved and attracted to you to be revealed simply and primarily. The sacraments are God revealing <laughs> that he's being moved by and attracted by you simply as yourself. So we enter into the liturgy by receiving God's affirmation, by receiving God's response to us as a value. And then we respond to God by receiving him as a value in and of himself. And it's in this dynamic of mutual receiving and giving, of becoming gift, of receiving gift and becoming gift, that we glorify God in a posture of reverence. We're doing it for God's sake and we're only secondarily transformed. So the sacraments are, are only secondarily therapeutic. It's primarily this receiving God's response to our value 
in us receiving God as a value. And in the midst of that authentic reception and response, then the sacraments also have this fruitfulness where I'm transformed, I'm melted away, I'm affirmed. I become more truly and perfectly what I am. And by doing that, I more perfectly become the image of what God's created me to be, actualizing my being, becoming that expression of, of the logos that I am in creation, reflecting God's truth, goodness, and beauty in a way that's more, more profound and extreme. So this is, I believe, the context, the, the, uh, the framework for true uh, Christian self-development, self-help. It's all uh, God's affirmation, God's help. And by entering into the, the world around us, truly responding to value, allowing ourselves to be affirmed by reality, and then giving ourselves back as a gift. That's what uh, becoming a gift looks like, and that's what becoming holy looks like. Thank you so much for being a part of Physically Spiritual. Every moment of the show you've watched, know that I'm grateful that you've given your time to this. I'm so passionate about the message that I'm trying to share, and I'm excited about the future of the show. So thank you for every like, every view, every watch, every follow, every comment, every rating you give in the show. And a special thank you to all you that are already members of the Awakened Nation. So thanks again for supporting the show.